hope that you're having a great and prosperous look into your future. This is Thinking Thursday. I'm your host, Shantae Charles, and I'm excited. I am excited. I am excited. I don't know about you all, but I woke up with a feeling and a sense of excitement. I literally woke up, <laughs> rolled over, and then I just started praying. I started praying for the coming year. Um, I started praying for my friends, my family, um, my husband, just um, the things that I have uh, as perspective things to start the new year. I'm just really excited. And so I just feel like something fantastic, something good, something wonderful is going to happen in your midst. The week is not over. So be on the lookout for something positive, something wonderful, something good to break forth in your week. Definitely. Been praying for the We Dare Squad that God would continue to encourage you all. I um, took a look at the Spotify rap numbers and I want to share a little bit of that with you all this morning. Uh, especially those of you all who uh, support what we do here in the uh, ministry. So let me see, where can I pull those up? Yeah, so I want to thank those of you all who are not only coming to view our live broadcast, our live stream, but those of you who are also listening to the podcast, those of you who all are sharing the podcast, because let me tell you, this year, not including today, uh, not including tomorrow, um, as we're going to end on tomorrow, as far as this year's uh, podcast for Daring Dialogues, we still have one more podcast that we will be doing on December 30th at 6 p.m. But so far this year, we have created 4,490 minutes of content. So we know we're going to break that barrier this week. Um, so I'm excited. And the data shows that that is more than 99% of other creators in the society and culture category for our podcast. Uh, we should have been given an award this year. Maybe we'll get one next year. But we are creating more imperative more important content than 99 other creators, 99% of other creators in our same category. That's amazing. That is amazing. We had between March 20th and March 26th, we had 109% more listeners compared to any other week. So I had to go back and say, what were we doing in that week? And surprise, surprise, we were talking about women. We were talking, we were doing some women appreciation that week for Women's History Month. And then it said this about those who listen to the podcast. It says, your listener's podcast personality is the devotee. When your listeners love a podcast, they really love it. They're quick to support new releases and play their favorite episodes again. 
So I want to thank you um, for being devoted and being um, committed to this broadcast. I want to thank those of you who are coming back and replaying and listening and sharing uh, what we have here. We have had on our podcast a 69% increase in our followers and a 14% increase in our listeners. Just giving you some data as we begin this morning. We are in the top 10 podcasts for eight of our listeners. We're in the top five podcasts for six of our listeners. And we are the number one podcast for four of our listeners. And so I want to thank you all. Good morning. Uh, for coming in. Good morning, good morning, good morning for coming in today. A couple more data facts and then we're going to move into our reading. So this year so far, we have had 112 episodes. We've uh, produced over close to 4,500 minutes of content. We have added listeners from three new countries And I want to talk about who those listeners are. So I am going to take a moment and I'm going to give a shout out to all of the countries that are listening to our broadcast. So if you hear your country, I hope you smile today. We have Germany, the United States, India, Peru, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines, the UK, Sweden, Lebanon, Brazil, Russia, the United Arab Emirates, France, Bangladesh, the Netherlands, Bolivia, Spain, Aruba, South Africa, Australia, and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Wow. Give me one moment. So all over the world, and I'm excited about that. As I said, we've added three new countries of people who are listening to our podcast. And so as we have these conversations, I want you to know that if you're coming on and you're engaging in the content and you're asking questions, that people around the world are tuned in to the conversations that we've been having. This is not just... The United States, that's tuned in. Um, About 10% of our listeners come from these other countries. So I want you all to be encouraged by that, be inspired by that, that your voice is being heard around the world. So today is our Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, and we're going to just be in one book today. We are looking at the book Carved in Ebony, Carved in Ebony, and we have been looking at the life of Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. We're going to talk and continue to talk about her life and how she has inspired others. How she has inspired others. These are women of the faith who were in the early movements of the faith in the 1800s that we don't often get a chance to hear about because a lot of times, sometimes our content is uh, can be too male-focused, right? We are reading the theology work of um, James H. Cone, 
We have been reading him for several weeks. We're going to pause and just focus today on Carved in Ebony, Lessons from the Black Women Who Shape Us. Francis married widower Fenton Harper in 1860. He died only four years later, taking with him what little wealth Francis had amassed with her writing and speaking. After his death, Francis and her daughter, Mary, moved back to Philadelphia, where she resumed speaking and teaching. Later in her life, Francis would say of motherhood, Every mother should endeavor to be a true artist. I do not mean by this that every woman should be a painter, sculptor, musician, poet, or writer, but the artist who will write on the tablet of childish innocence thoughts she will not blush to see read in the light of eternity and printed amid the archives of heaven that the young may learn to wear them as amulets around their hearts and throw them as bulwarks around their lives, and that in the hour of temptation and trial, the voices from home may linger around their paths as angels of guidance around their steps and be incentives to deeds of high and holy worth. And despite the fact that her renown as a great writer and orator would far outpace the details that we know of her life as a wife and mother, she would say, the home may be a humble spot where there are no velvet carpets to hush your tread, no magnificence to surround your way. But what are the costliest gifts of fortune when placed in the balance with the confiding love of dear children or the true devotion of a noble and manly husband whose heart can safely trust in his wife? The crown of her motherhood will be more precious than the diadem of a queen. Frances did not despise her home, but neither did she use her home as an excuse not to set her hand to the task the Lord had put before her. Though a devoted wife and mother, Frances still managed never to shy away from the hard work of abolition. Her pen was never still. There are many reasons Frances might have gone from humble school teacher to renowned lecturer, but the one that tugs at me the most has to do with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The Fugitive Slave Act endangered not only runaway enslaved people seeking sanctuary in northern free states, but also free black men and women who matched the descriptions of their enslaved counterparts. Maryland furthered this legislation by enacting a law that put any free black person who entered the state in jeopardy of imprisonment or enslavement. A free man in Francis's own city of Baltimore was kidnapped sold into slavery, and eventually died before he could regain his freedom. One theory is that this is the knowledge that galvanized Frances and moved her private support of the Underground Railroad into the public spotlight. Rather than recoil from the Fugitive Slave Act in fear, Frances spoke all over America, both in the North and the South, offering a rallying cry for change. She did not shrink or shirk, but rose to the occasion with everything she could muster. In a letter to William Sill, a fellow black abolitionist, she wrote, I have a right to do my share of the work. The humblest and feeblest of us can do something. And though I may be deficient in many of the conventionalisms of city life and be considered as a person of good impulses, but unfinished, yet if there is a common rough work to be done, call on me. Francis's tipping point might have looked a lot like one of mine. My firstborn son was born in the summer of 2016, the writer says. My husband Philip and I were in the middle of a cross-country move from Minnesota to Mississippi. 
The lease was up on our cute suburban duplex, and we were staying in a hotel until it was time to set off. Philip had run out to grab us some food, and I was sitting in bed nursing my child and scrolling Facebook. Philando Castile was killed that same day. I scrolled in horror, processing the details of what had happened. He was shot by the police during a traffic stop in the very suburb Philip and I had been living in for the past year. I immediately called Philip to check on him, my heart hammering in my ears, postpartum hormones rushing through my veins. Philando's Castile's death was not the first such shooting of a black man that I had ever heard of. It wasn't the first one I had ever mourned. It wasn't even the first one that had happened in a state where I resided, but it was the first one that felt close. And I remember sitting on that bed, holding my brand new baby boy and thinking of how much everything had changed for me. I was now a member of a little brown skinned boy. I was now a mother of a little brown skinned boy. My heart was not only out and about on the streets of Minneapolis in search of takeout, but in my arms. I did not pretend to know the mind of Francis Harper, but I know what it feels like for something to hit closer to home than ever before. I know what it's like for passion to spark and bleed out onto the page and for the writing on the page to move onto the lectern. Bronze muse, though I may never be, I have mused on so many of the words that Francis shared in speeches, and I have felt the conviction of them deep in my own heart and life. Francis did not work for fame and renown, but from a deep conviction that the work she was applying herself to was a worthwhile endeavor. But what I love most about Francis is that her passion for abolition did not just lead her to the speaking circuit. It bubbled over into poetry and into works of fiction. If you had asked 10-year-old Jasmine what she wanted to be when she grew up, she would have said a teacher and a writer. At the tender age of 30, I'm able to apply both of those descriptors to my profession, except for the fact that back then, by teacher, I definitely meant college professor, and by writer, I most assuredly meant youngest fiction Pulitzer Prize winner in history. Since high school seniors make me break out in nervous hives, I doubt that college students are in my future and I'm already too old to be the youngest Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction. An honest estimation of my writing skills acknowledges that the prize may be out of my reach. Still, for a black girl who writes poetry and stories in her spare time, Frances Harper's existence as a speaker, a mother, a poet, and fiction writer is an inspiration and a marvel. It's hard to find a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie about a black woman, let alone a 19th century novel, and yet, though it is contested that Iola Leroy was the first novel published by a black woman, it was still one of the first. Not 30 years after the Civil War, Frances penned a novel about young Iola, a white passing freed woman who chose boldly to identify herself as black rather than to live a life passing for white. Within the beauty of her storytelling lies the cultural commentary that peeks out of her speeches. Before the titular character is even introduced, Francis writes about the religion of the South in tones that echo Frederick Douglass's infamous appendix to his narrative. Oh, I don't take much stock in white folks' religion, said Robert, laughing carelessly. The way, said Tom Anderson, that some of these folks cut their cards here, I think they as scarce as the heben in hen's teeth. 
I think when some of them preachers brings the Bible round and tells us about minding our masters and not stealing their things, that they preach to please the white folks and they frowns coldness over the meeting. <laughs> That's an excerpt from her novel. 45 years before Zora Neale Hurston famously displayed a penchant for African-American vernacular English and dialect in her masterpiece, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Frances Ellen Watkin Harper's Tom Anderson spoke as Frances herself had heard the formerly enslaved speak during her post-war travels to teach in the South, though his dialect could not disguise his intellect. I think, he said, of the abusive white masters, they'll be as scarce in heaven as hen's teeth. For the uninitiated in the ways of Southern sayings, that's pretty scarce. Francis's sentiment echoes Douglas's words. He said, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. This is what Frederick Douglass had to say about the Christianity that he was experiencing in America, which yet again proves what I've always said, that our ancestors knew that there was a difference between what the slaveholders were trying to tell them about Christianity and what Christianity actually was. Throughout Iola Leroy, Francis's characters make mention of the difference between true Christianity and the Christianity that is being touted by the enslavers. And Christianity isn't the only hypocrisy Leroy dares to address. She says, the light-skinned black soldier Robert, isn't it funny, said Robert, how these white folks look down on colored people and then mix up with them? Ah, and later in her novel, quote, I think that some of these northern soldiers do two things. They hate slavery and they hate N-words. When Iola is introduced, Francis again offers startling cultural commentary of the time. Because Iola is white passing, it is easy for a white general to be disgusted by the vulnerability of her position as an enslaved woman. She writes in her novel, could it be possible that this young and beautiful girl had been a shadow with no power to protect herself from the highest insults that lawless brutality could inflict upon innocent and defenseless womanhood? Could he ever again glory in his American citizenship when any white man, no matter how coarse, cruel, or brutal, could buy or sell her for the basest purposes? Was it not true that the cause of a hapless people had become entangled with the lightnings of heaven and drag down retribution upon the land? Through her white-passing heroine character, Frances forces the reader to acknowledge the value Americans of the period placed on white womanhood over its black counterpart. Slavery was all fine and good for black women, but the mere thought of a white woman being put in such a vulnerable position was enough to make this white character sick to his stomach. Francis goes so far as to have Iola reject the marriage proposal of a white doctor who knows her family history and asks her to hide it in order to live a privileged life as his wife. 
Iola's own mother had made a similar decision before her, and one could hardly fault the young woman for seeking the protection that this white man was attempting to offer her. But Iola rejects him in favor of maintaining her ties with the black community and spending the rest of her life working to uplift it. The magic of this novel, Iola Leroy, though, isn't in the threads of activism that Frances spins throughout her book, but in the masterful writing itself. Iola herself is deftly described as young in years, but old in sorrow, one whom a sad destiny had changed from a lighthearted girl to a heroic woman. I wonder how much of herself the orphaned working class novelist wrote into the character of Iola Leroy. Like more than one woman profiled in these pages, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper was raised by a reverend and a teacher. She started working at 14 and did not stop working until the day she died. She was married only four years before going back to supporting herself and her young daughter. And yet, if single motherhood was a challenge to the calling God placed on her life, Frances seemed to have kept it to herself. She doggedly pursued her passions, which were lecturing, writing, and imagining. I currently teach at a classical Christian school in Jackson, Mississippi, the writer says here. I'm excited to introduce this woman to my students. We are very picky about the canon at my school, but we also realize that so many black voices have been barred from that writing canon throughout history. Phyllis Wheatley is the one black poet that most kids know. Maybe Paul Lawrence Dunbar, if they're lucky, and then later Langston Hughes. But we have so many more and a wide array of black voices and a huge cross-section of the black experience. Frances was not just a phenomenal speaker, she was a phenomenal writer. Her poetry and her storytelling abilities have stood the test of time, even when it seemed that time had forgotten them. In fact, just a few years ago, before her, just a few years ago, her first published book of poetry, Forest Leaves, was rediscovered. For 150 years, we assumed that her words were lost forever, and yet they were found by a PhD candidate who knew exactly where to look. As much as I love playing hide and seek with the treasure trove of influential black women who have shaped us, it is my earnest hope that 50 years from now, a little black girl who wants to grow up to be a writer doesn't have to look far to find the work of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Perhaps she will have had to memorize the Bible defense of slavery or the slave mother, two of her writings. Maybe her teacher will have assigned the two offers in a short story. Perhaps in a class that focuses on 19th century literature, Iola Leroy will be found in its rightful chronology after Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. I do know that my own children and my own students will know her name. And perhaps now that you've read her words, you can share her brilliance as well. However, if I have learned anything from Frances, it is that no matter how quiet the record of her brilliance has been kept, it cannot remain silent forever. I did not know about her until I did. And now that I do, I know to be incredibly grateful for her example and influence. And I know that there are a myriad of women like her just waiting to be discovered. They are hidden gems and diamonds in the rough now, but they were outspoken dynamos while they lived. 
and their lives shine as examples to us all. And guess what I'm going to be doing over the holiday season? <laughs> I'm going to see if I can find me a copy of Iola Leroy online. And I'm going to get that novel. Why? Why do you say? Because I myself am also a novelist. And I love to write in African-American vernacular English in my work. Because for this very reason, when people look back 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, I want them to see how we actually talked to each other. My novels are not for the white gaze. My novels are about black love, black community, black business owners, <laughs> and they are based in Savannah. So if you're looking for a good read, if you love Georgia like I love Georgia, if you love Savannah like I love Savannah, then you would enjoy my novels. Um, the series is called Church Love, and it's all about love, love for one another, uh, love for community, love for your culture. Um, love for your desire to be a, a business owner, love for the city of Savannah. I think the greatest compliment that I have had so far from people who have read my novels, um, people who are um, native to Savannah, who have lived there all their life, grown up there all their life, they have said to me, you do a really good job of describing Savannah describing some of the important cultural places and it is if you were from Savannah. So that to me is the greatest compliment because I have traveled to Savannah often, you know, and I've <clears throat> traveled around and done research and gone to different places in my research as an author just to make sure that I write an authentic picture of Savannah. So when I hear from people who live there who say, man, I know exactly where this is, or I know exactly what you're talking about, that really uh, touches my heart because it knows I, it proves to me that I've done my work as an author and a writer to really paint a picture of the city itself. So what are you going to be checking out for the holiday season? I know I'm going to try to get some uh, fiction reading done myself, but I'm definitely going to look for this book, Iola Leroy, because I don't have it. I got a lot of fiction books and I don't have this one. So this is the conclusion of my reading for today. When we come back in the new year, as God wills, we're going to be on chapter five and we'll be looking at the story of Amanda Berry, B-E-R-R-Y, Amanda Berry Smith. She is our next woman from history i'm gonna find out what her legacy is if you would like to join me for conversation this morning feel free to click on the camera below it's the little one that looks like a video with a plus sign in the center and we will bring you on if you are listening by the podcast i want to thank you for tuning in today i want to thank you for your time and your attention Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. We'll see you tomorrow, as the Lord wills. <laughs>